South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, a very good morning to you. I hope you're sitting somewhere warm and safe inside. Or maybe out on a porch or patio just watching this absolutely wonderful, wonderful wet day. Can't really say it's raining out there, but man, the roads are slick and uh, wet and Ah, we just need the moisture so badly. And they're saying that over the next uh, maybe 36 hours, we may get very significant rainfall, which would be nice. Just drizzle right now, but uh, really is a nice morning and not so bad that you can't get out. But anyway, lots of things to talk about. I'm sure you have lots of things to talk about as well. Patrick is the only person I have waiting, so that leaves three open lines waiting for you to dial that number you know, 210-599-5555. And uh, we... We will talk. Here we are. Golly, can you believe it's just uh, roughly 10 days until Thanksgiving? And that means it's not that long till Christmas. And if you need, if you're thinking about gift giving and uh, need some good suggestions, I'll tell you about some of those as we go through the show. But uh, anyway, you know how I hate to keep people waiting. So let's just get started with phone calls. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, glad to be off the roads. <laughs> it was a, it was a, a dark, uh, dark, wet drive in, but uh, it's a nice day. You know, any day it rains in South Texas, it's a good thing. I agree. I'm driving right now. Well, please do it carefully. How can I help? I've got, I talked to you before about some Texas persimmons I've planted. I've got some jujube trees that I've transplanted um, and some hedge apples that I'm growing from seed. When mm-hmm. can I stick those in the ground? Um, if Have you had them um, inside all along, or have they been outside uh, in, you know, exposed to the uh, ambient temperatures that we've been having the past few weeks? They're still outside. I, I planted them outside, kept them outside, so... You can put them in the ground anytime you like, as long as they're big enough that you're not going to run over them with a mower. Um, do you have a place that you can protect them from deer? Those are not things that deer would normally go after, but deer are hungry enough right now that they they tend to taste things, and a deer doesn't have incisors. It can't take a bite out of a leaf, so the way it, it tastes things, it, it grabs it and literally rips it off, shakes its head and rips it off of the plant and young plants that many times pulls them out of the ground and people always call me and say oh man the deer pulled my plants up well they weren't trying to pull your plants up they were trying to get a taste of them so um, if you if you have deer in the area and if you can protect them from the deer uh, you can plant them this afternoon the sooner you get them into the ground the happier they're going to be okay yeah and that's I do have deer and yeah uh, but I'll put a uh, fence around them and, and protect them that way. And as far as, they're probably not very freeze-hardy, are they? At this, Some of them are only a couple inches tall. Um, some are a foot and a half tall. And then some are four foot tall. The the fact that you've had them outside all along has given them a good chance to harden off. So uh, they actually should be very freeze-tolerant uh, down to... Oh, golly, certainly down to 20 degrees, I wouldn't worry about them. And it's very unlikely, at least until January, that we would ever get temperatures down into single digits, which is pretty much what it would take to hurt them. And then you'd you'd wrap them no matter what size they were, if you could. So um, 
barring some extreme change, uh, the plants should be should be totally freeze tolerant for you. The thing that hurts and the time that we see hardy plants actually damaged are when it goes from being 80 degrees one day to 20 degrees the next. And believe it or not, this has actually not been a bad fall as far as a gradual cool down. We had that one day when we had cold and very desiccating winds. We actually had frost at least up in the hill country. But uh, this has been the what we hope for with plants because it's given them a chance to gradually adjust, adjust to the cooler temperatures. Uh, it would be a good idea, and you may have already been doing this, uh, to spray them every week or two with some liquid seaweed, like two tablespoons per gallon of spray. Uh, that will greatly increase their cold hardiness. But uh, that particular group of plants, I'm I, I'm not concerned about cold with them since they've been outside, you know, right along. That, that's why I asked where you'd had them. If you had been growing them inside right. under, you know, a light setup or something like that, yeah, I would be reluctant to put them in the ground uh, until they hardened off but the fact they've been outside you know they're you're treating them like mother nature would treat them and now just uh you know plant them as we always do dig the hole fill it with water be sure it all drains out if there's any problem with drainage you know create a berm mound them up a little bit but uh um if if the weather is such that you want to get out and play in the mud a little bit uh you can plant them this afternoon Okay, and I was a little worried about having them in their uh, one-gallon, three-gallon pots if we got a freeze, because I figured the roots might actually freeze. And you're exactly right. Yeah, it's it takes a very cold spell to freeze the your soil solid in a pot, uh, but that's not to say it can't happen. So you're exactly right. And and once you get them in the ground, especially if you put a little mulch around them, you know they're they're good for the foreseeable future. Okay, and I got neighbors that are taking some from me, so I'm going to get rid of them as fast as possible. <laughs> Less worse for work for you, and uh, just put a bow on them so you can tell them they're Christmas presents, and then you won't be obligated to do anything else. Yeah, they're not going to get me to dig those holes. <laughs> <laughs> well, in one gallon size pots, that's that's not too big a job to worry about. Now, if these were established in 15 gallon containers, yeah, I'd actually have them come pick them up rather than take them to them and then let them let them dig their own holes. But a, a gallon size container, if you can't dig a hole that big, uh, you're in pretty bad soil. Well, I got 50 of them, so uh ah <laughs> well, you you don't have to go to the gym this week if you decide to help out on any of them. Exactly. Hey, thanks, Bob. It's always a pleasure. I sure appreciate the call. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. All right. Uh, looks like we've got Carl and Ross and CB. Carl's next in line. Good morning, Carl. Yeah, uh, good morning. I have a couple questions. Uh, the first one, uh, I have some native uh, i thought were uh you'll find holly that came up but uh, uh-huh. one that has berries on it has lost all of its leaves so i'm okay it's, it's probably a, a possum hall that would and be so my, yeah that uh, that would be my assumption as well if the plant was healthy and just started dropping leaves and uh yeah that's almost certainly a possum hall Okay, because right now, I mean, it's all bears and no leaves, but it's in a stand of like four or five, and all the other ones, I guess, are male, and, and they still have the leaves on them. 
they would, would I mean, is that what how that works with Possumal, or, or do I have a Yopan Holly that uh, lost its well, for some reason? Understand that Yopans and Possumhaws are two different plants. Possumhaw is something called Ilex decidua. Uh, the Yopans are something called Ilex vomitoria. So they are they're actually separate species of plants. So I doubt if all those if all those that came up were not necessarily seeds from you know the same plant because the males drop their leaves uh, just like the females do now there may be other factors at work but um huh. I, I wouldn't i wouldn't jump to the assumption that they you know that they are uh, all males I, it, it's not out of the question that you know they're all actually yopons rather than possum haw and just for some reason this one decided okay. to drop the leaves but uh my guess it certainly sounds and how how tall are the plants how big are the plants uh they're probably about eight foot tall oh like, yeah uh, six to, six to eight foot well, it sounds like a possum haw, but uh, uh, the other ones that are clumped around might, and I don't know how closely you've looked at the leaves, but, um, you know, there is so much of the native persimmon around, and from a distance, they look exactly the same. And those I, crazy things... I they were. Yeah. yeah, that's what I, I thought they were. I have lots of persimmon. <laughs> I, I know they're not persimmons. Yeah, my... Oh, okay. Um, I then I'm just going to tell you we're just going to wait and see and see how okay. they perform. Okay. But the one that drops it dropped its leaves is almost certainly a possum haw. Okay, and then uh, does it take a male? Uh, it always takes a male uh, tree um, uh, to, to uh, for female. Uh, do they need to be like right next to each other or? or? Does it matter? No, no, they are okay. insect pollinated, and the insects tend to fly up to a mile. Um, okay. So, uh, and I've I've never seen a female holly, be it uh, Burford, be it Yopon, be it Possum Haw, or anything else. I've never seen a holly that normally produces berries fail to produce berries for lack of pollination because apparently you can get what we would call inter interspecific pollination and that just means that other kinds of hollies can pollinate uh, different hollies now it may end up with non-viable seed or it may end up uh, you know with some some weird spring in the future uh, some outcome in the future offspring, but uh, it doesn't doesn't change, you know, the either parent plant if it happens, uh, you know, to uh, achieve pollination, even though they're two different species. So, um, lots of different factors at work uh, out there that you know you'd you'd have to watch them and study them for years, and probably have a good little microscope to be able to take the flowers and look at the flowers and see whether they've got a pistil or whether they've got the stamen. But uh, that's some that's something yeah. you can tackle if you want to. Right now, my advice is just enjoy them. Okay. Well, if I wanted to, that one planted with berries to stand out and get rid of the other ones, and I cut those cut those off, are they just going to grow back from 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 uh, you know like a. Um, you know, from from the uh, uh, cut from off the base, point. yeah, probably yeah. so. Oh, okay. okay, probably no. so, and that, <laughs> like that's that's why, yeah, that that's why possum haws are virtually always propagated from cuttings rather than trying to rely on seed. If you want to have right. more of that one, if you decide that's a very good variety that you want to have in your yard, uh, this actually the time of year you could take some cuttings from it, root them in perlite or coarse sand. Huh. And uh, but but virtually every possum haw, every yopon you see in a nursery is grown from cuttings, not from seed. 
Okay. And then the, the last question is, is Big Tooth Maple. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bernie, want to plant one at my nephew's house. Um, what, what, what are they fast growing? What can you just give me a sort of one hundred one on 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 dealing with that, or is, it, is that a good idea? Not. Oh, they're they're a beautiful plant. Um, they're you know can be hard to find, uh, but some of the nurseries that carry natives, probably friendly natives up in Fredericksburg or somewhere like that, will have them. Uh, at one point, the Cibolo Nature Center was giving away small plants just to encourage people to plant them. And if you look around, okay. there there are some beautiful ones around Birdie. I'm going to put a moderate on the growth scale. Uh, they're probably going to grow a little faster than your possum haw, but they're certainly not going to grow like a red oak or a sycamore or something like that but uh um as sooner you get them and get them in the ground the faster they can grow and make beautiful trees for you picky i hope you're in a spot that you have you know a decent soil just putting them right on top of rock uh they they're not going to flourish as well if you're in an area with very shallow soil i consider creating a berm or um you know even a raised bed to plant them in Perfect. That's what we'll do then. Okay, perfect. Thank you very, very, very much. Always a pleasure. Appreciate the call. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Ross and CJ will be up in uh, just a minute. Right now, I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And Fanix is one of those places that it's just always fun to visit. Ten acres of nursery, which means they have room for a bit of everything. Been around for about 90 years. Operated by people who truly love plants and love helping people grow plants. It's, it's just always a great day to visit. They've got all the garden, organic gardening supplies we talk about and this time of year they have a remarkable number of gift type merchandise they've got some of what we call kinetic art wind spinners i'm not going to try to describe them to you You just need to go see them to believe them something you would enjoy or something that would make a great christmas present and if you're looking for greenhouses they've got the little pop-up greenhouses that you can protect smaller things with and they can arrange for you know full-scale greenhouses if you really want a greenhouse that you can that you can garden in Vanix also has greenhouse plastic if you're closing in a porch or a patio for the winter by they sell it by the foot you don't have to buy a whole roll same way with insulate fabric i could go on and on they've got a great selection of trees and we're close to the green uh, shade tree rebate programs from cbs cps and they have lots of plants that qualify plus they've got uh, garlic they've got shallots they've got winter vegetables winter flowers go see them over on home green road where they've been for about 90 years check them out online at Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this very fallish morning out there. Looks like the lineup includes Ross and CB and Barbara and Brian. Ross is first in line. Good morning, Ross. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Off to a good start. How are things in Seguin? Uh, kind of dreary, but, you know, we need the water. <laughs> we need the water, and it is November, so this is what it's supposed to do. So what's going on? I just wanted to pass on some good news. That is? Um, you're, you're familiar with uh, Syngenta Corporation, right? Right. Well, they have a facility in Arkansas. And the state government and all the officials there got together and are forcing them out of their facility. Forcing oh, really? Them to give it up. Uh-huh. And they claim it's a 160-acre facility, and they claim it's uh, seed research. 
but apparently they've gathered information that they shouldn't have, and the government got got wind of it. Hmm. So, and it's kind of starting a trend because in uh, Kansas City, <laughs> Missouri, uh, another Chinese-owned corporation is being forced out. That's uh, very interesting and news to me. It's uh, yeah, it, I saw it online. It was a news feed. Um, they, the one in uh, Arkansas, they posted. You know, they did a big interview with the news news station, and you know, they put it online, and apparently, it's moving around. <laughs> well, that's it's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, interesting news. I sometimes I'm feel like we're making progress. Sometimes they. Uh, uh, you know, it seems like we're slipping back. They're changing the name of GMOs now again to, I think, biofortified or some crazy stuff like that. But uh, uh, they're just, you know, bioengineered. It, yeah, bioengineered. Or the I think the newer one is biofortified. But Ross, I appreciate you sharing the information, and uh, we'll put that down as a, a mark in the column for the good guys. You get out and have a good day, yeah. and have a good Thanksgiving. If we don't talk for then. All right, you do. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Uh, CB is next in line. Good morning, CB. Good morning. How you doing, Bob? I'm good. Anytime it's raining on this dry country, it makes me happy. I, I'm, I'm glad to be off the road and sitting here in a dry place looking out at a pretty garden, so life just couldn't be a whole lot better. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm up here in Spring Branch. Uh, I had a question. I, I burned some brush about five or six years ago. Uh-huh. And I burned a couple of big brush piles, and I had heck getting anything to grow back there. Right. And this spring, this spring we had a, I think it was like an EF zero. We had, I think we had a little tornado come through. It took some big trees off our property. Uh-huh. I got them all in a pile. I couldn't burn them until about two weeks ago because of the burn ban. Right. So I got them burned. A lot of big trees. Got them all burned down. Now I'm trying to figure out how can I get grass to grow back in that spot where I burned. Well, as you probably know, I'm I'm on about the same latitude as you. I'm just over west of Bernie rather than being over towards Spring Branch. And yeah. what I have found on my property is if I burn a pile one time and move on, the grass comes back pretty easily. If I burn in the same spot, you know, five or six or ten times, I have a heck of a time getting the grass to come back. So uh, if this is a one-time only thing, I doubt it's going to be a real big problem for you. I suspect if you're like me, um, you know, I tend to pile stuff up and burn it in the same spot over and over and over, and that's where I have always had the hardest time getting grass to come back and grow again. Now, best thing you can do uh, in an area like that is, uh, you know, put down molasses, either liquid or dry, put down some Medina, uh, what they call either soil activator or the improved form they call Medina Plus. If you have it, spread a little leaf mold or compost a couple of inches deep over the area. And within a season, you should see grasses starting to come back in. Uh, But the best, well, and, and this is just what I, you know, do now since I learned is I tend to spread things out and I try not to burn on exactly the same spot more than once and in most cases uh, the next year I can't even tell where I burned but I've got a couple of uh, you know spots actually a couple of pits where old trees rotted away and created a depression where I've burned over and over and uh, even the cockleburs won't grow in there (laughs) okay 
All right, well, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe I just need to move over about 20 or 30 feet and build another yeah, one. Yeah, just, just, uh, yeah, just, just move your piles around, and that way you also don't accumulate a whole lot of ash. Ash is very caustic. Ash is extraordinarily alkaline, and that can also have a good deal to do with... Uh, um, the fact that nothing wants to come up and grow and by spreading the ash around you know over a much bigger area that's also going to make it possible for you to get your grass regrowing again much more quickly yeah yeah i did that before it rained so it really did help i mean it's just black now the ash seems to be more or less soaked in or whatever but yeah yeah but uh all righty, that's all I needed this morning. We appreciate you, buddy. We listen to you all the time. Well, we appreciate that. I'd say you need to get a life. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you're up early to enjoy the best part of the day, CV. So you get out and enjoy. And... What's that? On the front porch drinking. Sitting on the front porch drinking coffee by a fire. Yeah. And that's not a not a bad way to start a Sunday morning. I hope you and your families have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Let's see here. Yeah, Barbara and uh, Brian, hang on just a second. I need to get a break in here and don't want to have to rush anybody. So I get to talk about my friend Sam Setterly and Green Grow Organics. And uh, you know, I had just a really nice visit with Sam a little while back uh, when we was on our organic roundtable at the Festival of Flowers that we did back in the spring. And I just have so much respect for the man. He does so many things and does them so well. And he's also so innovative. Number one, he's 100% organic in everything he does does and like i am he's very concerned about these companies that come around and talk you into signing up a long-term contract to have them come out and supposedly take care of your yard on a quarterly basis which means they mainly just put out synthetic nitrogen fertilizers and spray a lot of poison around well sam wants you to have an alternative his alternative is no contract no long-term commitment but he will come out on a quarterly basis and do it right with organic products to provide the fertility you need with micronutrients to keep everything looking really good putting out beneficial nematodes as often as needed to control any pests that are out there just makes a whole lot more sense and yet it's you've set it up with him and you don't have to worry about uh, calling and reminding and, and making appointments yourself and like I say there's no contract there's no obligation he's pretty sure that when you see the results you'll want him to keep on doing that Sam of course is still available for individual consultation to solve problems that may crop up sometime learn all about all these things by going on his to going to his website, which is Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. If you need to give him a call, number's easy to remember, 210-599-5565. That's Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to the phone lines. It's going to be Barbara and Brian and Janie. Barbara is in line first. Good morning, Barbara. Blessed morning to you, sir. How are you? Off to a good start. It's uh, it's fall out there. It feels like fall for a change, and uh, I think we were all a little afraid we were just going to go directly from summer to winter, but uh, things are actually starting to look a little bit like fall. Leaves changing a little bit, and uh, temperatures that are cool but not cold. So I'm I'm very happy with the situation. How about you? <laughs> I am too. I'm calling uh, regarding 
31 gallon plants that I planted back in September through the Saws Water Saver program. Okay, yeah, perennials of some sort. Is getting them through the getting them through the winter. I do can have you, uh, about six oak leaf uh, oak trees that I can rake the leaves, and I'm wondering if I can use those leaves to cover those plants. Oh, absolutely! But why don't you give me a quick rundown on uh, which which ones, what plants you planted, and I'll tell you what to expect from them. I have salvia, greggy, some frog fruit. I think there's blackfoot daisy, gulf okay. lily, uh, Barbados cherry. Can't remember what else. The asters, I think, are out there. Okay. The Barbados cherry is the only one you've mentioned that I would really worry much about covering. Uh, Salvia gregii, one of the hardiest plants you can plant. Uh, frog fruit, if it freezes a little bit, it will come right back out. Uh, Blackfoot daisy should remain evergreen through the winter. It's very cold hardy. It grows along the roadside. So um, those are all things I wouldn't be concerned about. If you planted plumbago, uh, I would mulch it heavily, like say Barbados cherry, I would mulch it heavily and probably cover it if it gets real cold. Uh, firebush is going to freeze back no matter what you do, and you're thinking to think it's dead because it always comes back two weeks after you give up on it. But uh, it's it's very dependable. Your fall asters, golly, I've had those coming back for 30 years, even in a in a summer like this where I didn't answer, uh, water them a single time, and yet they have come back and bloomed beautifully this fall. So they're extremely hardy. Uh, some of the tender salvias, like the indigo spires and uh, that whole group, uh, hybrids from Salvia farinacea, those are going to freeze down, and it would be good to uh, to mulch them. But certainly, don't worry about covering them. Uh, uh, and if you if you're able at some point to call me back and give you a more complete list, I'll I'll tell you a, few, a little bit more about them. But uh, uh, plumbago again, I would mulch it heavily. The uh, softer salvias, I would mulch heavily. The Barbados cherry, I would uh, mulch heavily. And probably cover it if we're going to get, you know, anywhere close to 20 degrees. But the others, no, they're hardy and need very little from you other than occasional water. And uh, uh, so much around them will always be great, but don't lose any sleep over them. Okay, excellent. And the other two that I thought of are, uh, I have an upright lantana and uh, esperanza. You said a white lantana? I think it's called, it's not the trailing, but the upright Okay, the upright, uh, the upright will freeze down. It will be very important to mulch that. Uh, the Esperanza is, is a tropical and being very newly planted, uh, I'm going to make that one even more tender than your Barbados cherry. That one, you're going to need to wrap it up if we get very far below freezing, at least for this first winter. Mulch it heavily. Um, uh, is it a big plant or it was, it was in a one gallon container too? Yes, sir. They're all one gallon. Okay. Uh, mulch it as best you can. That one cover up as best you can. Don't be surprised that the top freezes down to some extent. In fact, it may have even shown a little bit of freeze damage from that cold and windy spell we had 10 days ago. But uh, that that's the most tender plant you have, and that's one you should spend you know, a little time and effort trying to cover as well as mulch. But most of what you have there are exceptionally hardy. Excellent. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your help. Well, it's always a pleasure. Call any time. We're here to help you. Thanks, Barbara. Bye. Goodbye. Uh, next up is Brian. Good morning, Brian. 
Hey, good morning, Bob. Calling uh, out in Magnolia. Uh, I got a couple of questions for you this morning. First okay. off, uh, I think it was last Sunday there was a woman who called in about utilizing cardboard in her uh, vegetable garden for weed suppression. I right. had to jump off and I missed that conversation. Just want to see if you couldn't give me a recap of your recommendation. Well, there's nothing toxic about cardboard. Uh, uh, just like newspapers these days are printed with soy ink. And because they, you know, hold up for a while, um, they will suppress pretty much all the annual weeds. You're not going to have much problem with dandelions or henbit or winter grasses or things like that in a place that you use those as a mulch. Of course, you ought to put something heavier on top of them. Uh, to keep them from blowing down to the neighbor's place. But uh, they're not going to do a lot about Bermuda grass and some of the really tough things, but uh, uh, they're they're easy and they're free. So uh, with cardboard, I put it on no, three or four layers thick if you're really trying to hold things down. With newspapers, I'd have it maybe 10 pages thick to put down so they don't just all rot away with the first rain. But... Uh, um, it's, yeah, I'd like to say it's a cheap and easy mulch, not the prettiest thing in the world, but the price is certainly right. Absolutely. If it's under some, uh, you know, compost or if it's under tree trimming, you can't see anyway. I was hoping you were going to say uh, it, it was good against Bermuda, but I guess, you know, dang, better luck next time on that one. Well, it, it will, it'll slow it down, but it's not going to, it's not going to totally control it. Uh, uh, I, again, just solarizing is about the, best thing that you can do that will come close to uh, eliminating it uh so then that's something you have to do in july and august but uh it'll certainly it'll certainly slow it down i'll put it that way but um bermuda's just pretty tough i wish it grew as well in uh, the yards where we want it as it does in the flower beds where we don't i think that's the truth uh, then, Bob, I'm sitting here looking at a couple uh, new seed catalogs that came in the mail. Uh, just wanted to see if you had a chance to flip through any, and what's, what's got your interest for next year? I tell you, I I haven't had a chance to sit and um, really and, and look at a seed catalog in some time. We, we've got a lot of fun things going on, but uh, it's uh, including getting our property here under conservation easement so nobody can ever take away our beautiful setting here. And uh, there's just been a lot of things happening in the world that have kept me from sitting down and reading seed catalogs. So, uh, you, I, uh, you know, I, I'm not the right guy to ask uh, which which catalogs are are you perusing uh currently it's uh baker creek's uh new one and then uh, mm-hmm. i just got uh johnny's in the other day as well so i'm uh those are my two that i'm they got at hand well baker creek is as close to organic pretty much as we've got on uh companies that are dealing with both heirloom and new seeds um it's like everything it's going to be a bit of uh of an experiment johnny's uh you got to watch them because they still put out some gmo seeds and things like that so read the descriptions carefully and hopefully they'll be totally up front but uh baker creek are those guys are doing it right and they they specialize in older varieties that have been around for a long time so without sitting here and looking at the two catalogs uh uh, I, I can't really tell you which varieties I'd be looking at, but uh, you're likely to find the tried and true, true ones from Baker Creek, likely to find some of the newer ones from Johnny's, but just read carefully to be sure what you're buying. Absolutely. I got, I got a good list here of all the old favorite tomatoes, and one that I added uh, off of your recommendation was that shishito pepper. 
Uh-huh. Uh, I never had a better pepper than that one. That's you eat that pepper any day, all day, and every once in a while you get a little bit of heat, but man, it sure is tasty. Oh, you can do it, and if you do them like the uh, like the beer pubs do, just uh, blister them in a cast iron skillet and serve them with a little ranch dressing. And uh, oh, I had an old old friend, uh, Cajun friend, that used to just talk about. They actually took a cooking class from him, and uh, uh, he would describe peppers. He would say. This one is hot enough to have some authority. <laughs> and so, yeah, the shishitos are hot enough to have some authority, but not to really hurt you. But uh, I'm glad you're, you've enjoyed them because I'm with you. That's, uh, that's one of the best little peppers I've ever seen. The other thing that I don't know if you've tried or not, uh, as a fresh pepper, I wouldn't give you two cents for the mild jalapenos. But if you do any pickling or canning, that that TAM mild jalapeno, it again, when you can it, it gets enough heat to have some authority, but it won't hurt you. It won't burn you now or later. But uh, And that's that's just a way of handling something that you may grow. And if you don't already have it, something to put on your Christmas list, I believe it's the University of Georgia puts out and updates with some regularity a, a book. Uh, it's like plastic spiral bound and several hundred pages, but it's called so easy to preserve. I think it's still under $15, and it will tell you a heck of a lot about other things to do with your produce. So put that on your Christmas list. But you, my wife uh, got me one last year. I got this oh, good. dish, I think, what I got. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, that thing's super packed with good information, and you know, no question about you know, food safety with that. You got all your questions answered. On, on mine, you can tell which pages I visited most by the grease stains on there. <laughs> but uh, well, listen, you're doing it right. Uh, if you find anything that uh, you really call a real winner, please share it with us so we can pass it along as well. And you get out and have a great Sunday, Brian. Always good to hear from you. Thank you, sir, and to your family as well. All right, got to get a break in here, Janie, but you are up next. And it looks like I get to talk about the freeze miser. You know, there's still a lot of people out there that have never heard of a freeze miser and don't know how it works. So let me fill you in. It's just an almost magical little device based on some really spectacular chemistry. No batteries, no wires, anything like that. But it's a device that you screw onto your water hydrants, things that might have the potential to freeze and break if we get a hard freeze. You screw it on, you turn the water on. Nothing happens. No water comes out. But if the temperature of the water in the pipes, not the air temperature, but if the temperature of the water in the pipe starts getting down in the 30s, gets to where things might freeze and break, the freeze miser automatically drips your faucet for you. Then when it warms up, stops dripping. You can put it on once in the fall, leave it there all winter long. That's what I do. And on places where I would need to keep a hose to use during the winter months, I put a Y connector and put the freeze miser on one side, the hose on the other side, and then just... Uh, Turn the freeze miser side on and then turn the hose size on and off as I need it. These things work. This will be the third winter that I've had them on my hydrants and uh, probably the reason that I haven't had any broken pipes the past few winters. Uh, Not expensive. If you want to see exactly how they work, go to freezemiser.com. Don't look for them at a box store. They deal with independent independent merchants. You'll find them at good nurseries, good hardware stores, places where you shop. I hope you shop for all your gardening supplies. It's called the Freeze Miser. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this 
wet morning out there. It's time to talk to Janie and then Tana and Omar. Good morning, Janie. Good morning. Good morning. See, we got your name right the first time every this time, Janie. <laughs> I'm glad, glad we did it correctly. <laughs> okay. I've got two questions. Okay. One, it's, it's okay. It's coffee, okay? Mm-hmm. I bought some coffee, and it didn't have the ceiling. You know how the ceiling has on it? Right. It was open. And uh, so I called the company, and uh, so they refunded me the money. But I asked him what to do with the uh, coffee grinds. Uh-huh. And he says, well, he has heard that you can put it around your plants. Use just a few. Um, the coffee grounds can be used. They good. They do break down in compost, but uh, caffeine has been shown to be a growth retardant. And one thing, what we've learned about coffee, I guess it's true whether you're drinking it or putting it on your plants, is that a little bit's just fine, but too much is not a good thing. So uh, sprinkle it, just just spread it out pretty well. Is this, uh, is this regular coffee or decaffeinated coffee? It's decaffeinated. And uh, like I said, oh. If it if it's too much, I mean, if it's not good to put it, I won't put it. I just oh no no, it's it's wait. okay, but just don't don't pile the whole can on one plant, especially being decaffeinated. It's it's not the coffee. The coffee itself is a good thing, and it grows some very beneficial fungi. But it just turns out that caffeine can stunt the growth of plants if you get too much of it. Of course, I guess growing up, we were told it would stunt our growth if we, you know, drank too much of it. But uh, yeah, spread it around. Don't throw it away. It's very compostable, um, but, you know, don't put it all in one spot, I guess is what I'm saying. But by all means, yeah, put it around your plants. Okay. Now, the next question is, uh, the, there's this plant, and it's almost related to the angel trumpets, okay? Okay. But uh-huh. It's white, and it grows straight up. It doesn't go down. Yeah, it's called a it's called a datura. The other is called a brugmansia, but, uh, yes, they're very closely related. Datura, you said? Datura, D is in dog, A-T-U-R-A, Datura. Yeah, because yeah. this man saw that, saw my plant, and he says, oh, I would like to have that. I said, well, it's, it gets a ball, and then it's got a lot of thorns all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very hard to take out. But inside that ball, it's got a lot of seeds. Yeah, it's a prickly, it's a prickly little ball that forms, too, isn't it? It's really, oh, I have to get some scissors to take them off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they grow, they grow easily from seed. They are a beautiful white flower. We just call them an upright angel trumpet, but they are very toxic. Um, you know, they, it's, it's the same thing that uh, some people call local weed. And uh, it, it causes cattle to drive crazy, go crazy if they eat too much of it. So um, keep it away from your pets and away from, uh, uh, you know, away from little children and things like that, but it's 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 not anything I would hesitate to grow. It's a beautiful plant. There's a purple and white form that's kind of double. That's uh, also very unusual. They and uh, but no, they're they're a great plant. They want plenty of sunlight. Uh, the seeds grow and sprout easily, so share it with your friends. But uh, just let them know that it is a toxic plant. They don't want their dogs chewing on those uh, seed pods or anything. Well, I got a new puppy and. He shoots everything, so I think I better cut it off and try to get all the seats I can out of it. Well, that, 
Yeah, that that would be a good idea. Yeah. Thank you very much for your help, okay? My pleasure, Janie. Thank you for calling this morning. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let's see here. We've got time to take one more call before our news break, and that would be Tana. Good morning, Tana. Hey, good morning, sir. Good morning to you. I'm getting a lot of drizzle, and it's nice. Well, the same thing I drove in, and uh, I only had two one-hundredths in my rain gauge this morning, but they're giving us a good chance as we go through the day and into tomorrow that we may get... uh, uh, some more substantial rain, and uh, my forecast says uh, potentially heavy rainfall. That means usually that it won't do it, but uh, we things are very definitely improving. We've had more rain the past three weeks than we've practically had in the last three years, so let's hope it keeps up. You betcha. Okay, um, I'll remind you of where I'm located. It's in McDonough, not right. too far from the railroad tracks. Okay. Uh, would a ginkgo tree do well in my yard? It would, um, because you have pretty deep soil, sandy soil. Um, no, ginkgo's not sandy. Do, well, but not it's you, you don't have rock. Um, no, you, you've, just deep, deep soil. Yeah, but uh, no, a ginkgo should do just fine in that area. Uh, that's the main thing that ginkgos need is is deep soil. Uh, if it's better soil, the ginkgo will grow faster. But, uh, you know, Howard Garrett's got probably the prettiest ginkgo tree I've ever seen. And uh, he's up in that, you know, black and white soil, as we call it for Dallas. It's just a heavy clay. And his has done extraordinarily well. So I would certainly work some compost around. I'd certainly put a compost mulch down. But uh, ginkgos are one of the most ancient plants on Earth. And they grow in an extremely harsh climate. They were thought to be extinct for many years. And then I understand they found some in a monastery in Tibet. (laughs) <laughs> of all places so yeah it uh they, they are a very tough hardy plant and like i say if you have deep soil as you do then uh, ginkgo should do fine for you i appreciate it thank you so much for being there for all of the questions we ask well it's my great pleasure and fun to visit with you always and since we've got about three minutes let's see if we can squeeze omar in here and rather than make him wait good morning omar hello bob how you doing off to a good start. How about yourself? No, it's, we're, we're sitting a little, little better than an inch of rain since Friday, so we're, we're okay. Outstanding. Outstanding. Bring it on. Yeah. Um, my only question was, <clears throat> I'm going to start playing with another New Mexico variety, but I've never heard anybody on the radio talk about growing hatch chili. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. And that it, it <laughs> yeah, it's a, a high-altitude chili. You know, it's a New Mexico chili along with, uh, you know, lots of others that would much rather be growing at 5,000 feet than at sea level. And mm-hmm. so, consequently, you can struggle along with them, but um, it's, uh, you know, goes right along with aspens and... Uh, uh, well, it, yeah, there are some people around that grow pinon pines in a little bit, you know, northern part of the hill country. But um, what you would have to hope for, Omar, is to have a long, pleasant fall because it's not going to tolerate our not going to tolerate our summers very well. But uh, kind of like people do with papayas, you could start it, you could grow it up 
inside before it, uh, you know, while we still have freezing weather, and then plant it out early as possible in the spring and expect to get some, you know, have a, a chance of getting some good early season peppers. But if you plant it right along with your jalapenos and, jalapeno- and uh, you know, things like that, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Okay, that's what I was wondering. It was a cool season because my my New Mex Twilights are they're finally just uh, they're they're starting to do what they're supposed to color wise, and they're they're yeah. going really really well. Yeah, and they taste pretty good. They're they're right along there with a the chili pekin. I, I forgot how close they were in taste. That's interesting because I've always considered them an ornamental pepper as opposed to a culinary pepper. But um, yeah, just well, buy yourself up a place in Cloudcroft or something like that, and <laughs> escape from the summer's heat and grow yourself some New Mexico chilies up there. <laughs> and uh, but no, it, it it's the heat that's hard on them and. Uh, uh, so I plant them early and just don't expect them to go real long into the summer. Gotcha. All righty, sir. Appreciate well, it. it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for the call this morning. And everybody else, that opens up some lines. So while we listen to the not-so-good news from around the world, grab that, uh, grab that phone line. and look forward to talking to you right after the news. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Uh, lots of things to do. If you use an organic fertilizer, you can put it on on a day like today when the grass is wet. Don't use that other stuff or it'll burn the heck out of it. Time to fertilize. Time to put out compost. Time to plant a lot of different things so you can have some beautiful color for Thanksgiving. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. uh, Back to gardening here on a nice morning out there. I just love this kind of weather. It feels good to have long sleeves on, but uh, you don't really have to bundle up. No need for gloves and caps and things like that. It's just a a fall morning and... uh, I uh, just love to see it. Uh, starting to see some color around. Some of the Mexican Buckeyes are coloring up and just, oh, I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful morning out there. Hope you're going to get to spend some time outside today. Uh, first in line is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Are you Hello? with us, Bill? Hello. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I misunderstood the name. Uh, Bill, g- good morning. Hello. Hello there. Yes, sir. My name's Neil. Neil, I got you. I got you. I'm a I'm a super citizen here and living in shirts. Very good. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, uh, You know, uh, your memory kind of slips uh, slips a little as you get older, as you you know. Uh, What were you talking about? (laughs) Go ahead, Neil. I understand completely. (laughs) A couple of years ago. Uh, I, I don't know how many years ago. I was reading a magazine, an uh, organic uh, magazine. Uh-huh. I think they're out of business uh, now. And uh, one of the things that I, I uh, uh, jumped into my memory was that when you say uh, you inject uh, uh, a squash plant mm-hmm. with uh, BT. Right. Uh, yeah. This uh, this recommendation was in that magazine was uh, they never mentioned that but what they did was they recommended that you put around the plant about an inch or two above the ground and lay it a little bit on uh, uh, aluminum foil on on the plant uh, 
Mm-hmm. And a couple inches around the plant, and what this does, it uh, it distracts, it uh, confuses the moth that lays the eggs around the base of the plant, and they therefore go on to another plant, and then you don't have to use that injection uh, method. Well, a logical uh, thing to say. Uh, they they must not have as big a garden or as big a squash plants as I do. I'd end up using a whole roll of foil, you know, just <laughs> yeah. just going halfway up and down. And uh, I'm afraid it would blind the gardener on a July afternoon. And I'm not sure that the reflected heat wouldn't uh you know burn the bottom side of the leaves which don't have yeah, quite I, as I much protection and i'm all for trying things i you know and squash vine borers are the nemesis of uh the home gardener oh malcolm beck used right. to say they only go after the commercial gardens but that's not been my experience uh they they are the biggest limiting factor in growing squash well and i've i've never tried that i've tried all the other things from human hair to you know 10 different things that are supposed to keep the moths away and uh, none of them have worked, and and that's why I've gone to just injecting the BT in the stem. Now, if yeah, you want to give it a try and report back yeah. to us, uh, you certainly can. Uh, and it, yeah. you know, it would be easier to do if you were growing, you know, the bush kind of uh, bush squash rather than the vining kinds, because. Uh, uh-huh. But even my even my bush squash get to be four feet across. So yeah, isn't the is that doesn't the moth lay its eggs in the soil and then no. when they when they hatch out they they uh, uh, go into the plant or do they actually lay the eggs on the on the plant itself? They lay the eggs on the plant itself. They lay the eggs usually within the first six inches where the stem has come out of the ground. Uh, right. That's where they lay the eggs. The eggs hatch. Uh, the little hatchling burrows its way into the stem, and as it grows, it just kind of tunnels through and just hollows the stem out, and eventually it just destroys the stem to the point the whole plant just folds up and dies. But no, they where that where that plant comes up out of the ground, usually they will lay their eggs in the in the first six inches of stem. You can go back and you will see where it looks like somebody just, I don't know, just chewed up the top of the stems where the little things have gone in. Now, there are people who carefully, and this is especially true on the yellow squash, not so easy on the zucchini, but they actually take a razor blade, slice the stem open, and very gently spread it like they were doing a surgical operation and pick out that little vine borer. I find it a lot easier just to take a syringe and... uh, and put some uh, BT down in there, but easier yet is to put a little aluminum foil about two inches above the uh, the ground. Uh, Give it a try and let us know how it works. You're, you're assigned. Okay, That's your I'll science project. <laughs> yeah, I also have a, a little story. I was sitting out there weeding the other day, and one of these hack and stack guys came by and looked at my trees, and he said, "Hey, you need to have your tree trimmed." I said, "Well, you know, how much he charge?" And he told me a price. I said, you know, I had an arborist come over and look at these trees, and he said not to cut anything down until spring because these trees may not be dead, and they'll come out in the spring. I said, now, if I hire you, what do I benefit from the dollars that you charge me? He looked at me, and he walked away. Yep. 
<laughs> well, you're smarter than he is, so uh, uh, you did there. Another, another thing was, uh, um, I remember you were advertising uh, artificial turf on your program, and I noticed very No, sir. No, sir. I talk about... I, I talk about artificial turf. I've never advertised artificial turf, and no, I never will. Yeah, I think that you didn't advertise, but your, your, the, the program advertised. Oh, well, the, yeah, the station advertises a lot of things I don't believe in. But, uh, yeah, no, artificial okay. turf uh, is, uh, I guess it has its place, but uh, yeah, not in my yard. Not a uh, one of the things I was upset about was that your advertisers, uh, not you, advertises guns on your program. Now, I was well, thinking, well, what the dickens does that have to do with planning? You know, <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, Neil. I'm kind of shoot a uh, shoot a plant with something. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of proud of the fact that they do because I'm a very big believer in uh, our our rights. I don't carry, but I could if I wanted to. But anyway, we can disagree on that and agree on lots of other things. I'm going to let you go because I need to move on and talk to many. Uh, good morning, many. Good morning, Bob, and thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you for calling, as Tom Tynan used to say. How can I help you today? Well, I'm looking at my beautiful plumeria. It's still outside. It has large leaves on it, and I know you are supposed to take care of it in the winter time. Mm -hmm. So what do I need to do now? Well, you need to keep it from freezing. And there are various ways to do that. If it's such that you can uh, bring it inside, all the better. Sometimes you have to prune it back to make it small enough to bring inside, and you can do that. Other people actually go so far as to just pull it up out of the pot and hang it up in the garage. And as long as the garage doesn't freeze, there are lots of different ways that... Uh, uh, and then they just take it and plant it back outside in the spring. So many different ways to accomplish the same thing. You just need to uh, be certain that it doesn't freeze. Leave it outside as long as you can. But it's going to drop most all of its leaves in the winter. That's normal. So don't worry about that. And because it's dropped its leaves, it doesn't need as much light in the winter months. So like I say, a lot of people, some people just drag them into the garage. Some people even pull them out of the pot and hang them up in the garage but plumeria is a tough, hardy plant. It's always going to come out quicker and bloom better uh, if you can leave it in the pot through the winter, but just, just do what you have to do to keep it from freezing. Water it sparingly through the winter. You'll only have to water it a few times. Just when that soil starts getting really dry, then give it a drink or put a few ice cubes on it and let it melt so the water goes into the soil very slowly, and um, they'll, they'll be there for you next spring, and <laughs> you'll have lots of fragrance beauty when the weather warms up again okay so i can bring it in and it doesn't necessarily mean that its leaves are falling off am i correct did i you you're exactly correct expect that the leaves will fall off okay all right well i thank you again for all the help you give me <laughs> it is my pleasure to be here for you, Minnie. Hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I know we will talk again sometime soon. Yes, uh, we will. <laughs> thank you. All right, Tim and Ellen, you guys will be up in just a minute, but I do need to take a break here, and I get to talk about Medina Agriculture. Love talking about Medina Agriculture, and there are many, many fine products. Medina's been around for, what, 60-some-odd years now? 
helping people work with nature to grow things better. Medina products are natural. Some of them are certified organic. That's an expensive process, so uh, not everything Medina makes is certified, but uh, they're all natural things that work with life in the soil rather than uh, against it. They do have products like their Growing Green, great fertilizer that is fully certified organic, great for your grass, your trees, your shrubs, your ground covers, your vegetable gardens, your flower beds, uh, just great things. And it is certainly time to fertilize. Their liquid fertilizers, like the Hester Grow products, once again, you'll use them a little bit more often, but they are what I recommend for house plants and plants growing in containers. And then they have things like their Soil Activator and Medina Plus that work to soften the soil, help the compost break down, support microbial life. I could go on and on. There are so many different products that Medina makes, not for just homeowners, but for farmers and ranchers that uh, treat thousands of acres. Medina products are used worldwide. I was visiting a steward at his plant one time and had to stop and take a call from Scandinavia, hung up from that and had to take a call from the Middle East. So we're not the only ones that know how well Medina works, but I think it works right best here at home. Go to the website, medinaag.com, to find all of their fine products and look for those products at uh, quality nurseries and garden centers and home stores that sell quality products. Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Tim and Susan and Pam and, excuse me, Pam and Kim. Tim is first in line. Good morning, Tim. Hello, Bob. Hi there. Hey, um, I've got this wooden box out in the yard. It's about two and a half foot tall by two foot wide. It's got some slits for handles, and it's full of honeybees. Uh Uh-huh. Where do I go from there? It's got a lid on it where I can open it up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, and and you would like to be rid of the bees, correct? Well, not really. I'd like to get a comb out of there. Um, you, the best thing that you could do would be, uh, you'd have to, anything you're going to do, you'd have to do it on a really cold day. Uh, chances are they do have something of a colony in there. Unfortunately, we don't know whether they're the Africanized bees that really react badly if they're disturbed or if they're a domestic honeybee. But um, you, you just you have to be careful. Even our friend Dr. Kirby, uh, he was keeping bees. He had a couple of beehives, and he didn't know that he was sensitive to the bee sting, and he got stung and had to go to the hospital and uh, and do all sorts of things. So bees are something that in the garden, they're really not a problem, whether they're Africanized or not, because they're very, very docile. But if they have formed a colony somewhere, um, they can be quite dangerous. So I, uh, if there's something you need to get out of that box, what I would do is pick a hot, sunny day, and I would cover it up with plastic, clear plastic. Uh, don't totally seal it up, but cover it up to where it's going to get really hot underneath there. And uh, it may be a while before we have weather like that, but we typically have some hot, sunny weather in the fall. But what you would do is just let it heat up to the point that those bees would decide to move and go somewhere else. But uh, 
Um, the other option, I mean, if you if you feel like you need to eliminate them, um, you could cover them up and put a room fogger or something underneath, but I don't recommend that because I don't really want you to kill the bees. I'd rather you just run them off, but uh, um, do it very, very carefully. Uh, there's a group here in San Antonio that you may be able to Google and find out how to contact them, but they're called the Alamo Beekeepers Association, and you might give them a call. They might have somebody that would come out and actually collect the colony and transport it to somewhere safe, but um, if you've got a swarm of bees, it's you, you just have to be really, really careful with it, and there's not a real easy answer to that, and like I say, a lot of people are very sensitive to bee stings without even knowing it, and uh, people die from bee stings all the time because of uh, what's called an anaphylactic reaction. So I would, if it were me, I'd probably call the Alamo area beekeepers or just find somebody who keeps bees. They have the special suits that they wear. Uh, they have uh, a little device that uh, produces a smoke that will drive the bees out. They could safely handle that box and get the bees located somewhere else. Uh, which, that, that's what I would do. That's, that's my advice on it. But just be very, very careful because it can be dangerous. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd rather do, yeah, I'd rather deal with a rattlesnake than a swarm of bees. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, well, they're not, they're not the F. I've been stung twice, but mm-hmm. I got too close to the hive. Uh huh. But they, they, they don't. You know, I can get within two or three feet, and uh huh. Well, you don't you don't really know they're Africanized. There's certain things that set them off. You know, running your lawnmower real close to that box for whatever reason can set them off. And uh, I don't know that it's fully understood exactly what will cause them to you know go into the attack mode. But um, uh, all bees, no bee wants to sting because a bee stings you, it dies. It leaves its stinger behind, and it can't live without that. But uh, I, I would just use extreme caution and uh, try to try to track down uh, a beekeeper, or maybe get hold of the Alamo area beekeepers, and they probably have somebody that'll come out and help you out with that at very little or no expense. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. Well, it's always a pleasure, Tim. Always good to hear from you. Thank you, sir. Uh, next in line is Susan. Good morning, Susan. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a uh, just a, a volunteer burr oak uh, that I let grow in my yard, um, and it was about uh, eight, about ten inches tall, and mm-hmm. I built it up and. I guess I didn't get deep enough. I, I cut the tap root. Is it uh-huh. going to live if you cut the tap root? Well, it doesn't really make a taproot. If, uh, you know, if you got six to eight inches of the root system, it has a very good chance of surviving. I, you know, can't, can't tell you for sure, but it, it's not a tree that forms a true taproot. It forms a very, woody vascular root system that does spread out so i would certainly give it a chance something that's that small uh it can lose a lot of its roots and still survive and grow i would water it in with super thrive or maybe a little garret juice or something like that uh periodically 
you know, spray a little bit of water over that little short stem. If it hasn't already done so, it's going to drop all its leaves through the winter months. So uh, it's yes, not, it's, not yeah, yeah, not under a lot of, of water stress. So uh, I'm going to give you at least a 50-50 chance that it will come out of this and grow to be a big, beautiful tree. Okay. And let me just ask you, uh, with their acorns, uh, mm-hmm. do you have to crack the, the, uh, their acorn? And then no. How, how far do you dig it? Uh, dig down in the dirt to plant it um you would plant it about two inches deep you absolutely do not have to crack the acorn but i would recommend that you start them in pots and then plant them in the ground and here's why because a squirrel can smell that acorn eight inches deep in the soil and they're going to come around and dig them up uh, before they have a chance to sprout and grow. Uh, if you start them in pots, put a piece of hardware cloth or something like that over the top because I have a very good friend that, uh, you know, potted up a nice big collection of them on the porch and squirrel came through and dug up every one of them and uh, had them for dinner. So uh, rather than putting them directly in the ground, uh, I, I'd start them out in pots and then once they're up and growing, uh, plant them wherever you need a big, beautiful, hardy, good, oak wilt resistant tree. I love bur oaks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another question. I planted some uh, ra- white radishes, um, uh, and uh, how do I know when they're they have grown? And I can I can the radishes. They they don't really mature they don't ripen so to speak uh it's very important now that you thin them out you thin them out to where the individual little plants are a couple of inches apart and the little ones you pull up you can just wash them and eat them they're absolutely delicious but the only way you'll really be able to tell is to either just probe down in the ground with your index finger or if you've got a long row of them you can pull up a couple of them but uh they they don't they they get bigger but they don't get better you can harvest them at any size and uh uh, it's not going to hurt if you even just kind of brush some of the soil away so you can see what kind of a root is formed. And if it's not big enough for you, just push the soil back around it. But thinning them out is really important or they'll never make big roots. They'll just be all top. But, uh, uh, again, they don't ripen. You don't have to pick a particular time. You just let them get up to a size you like. Somewhere medium size is going to be the best texture. If you let them get too big, they can be a little tough. Uh, what you have is probably called an icicle radish, uh, and they should be absolutely delicious for you. Okay. I think it's about an inch in, uh, you know, thickness. So. Oh, that's that sounds like it's a good salad size. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. All right. Uh, let's get a break in here, and then Pam and Kim will be up next. Looks like I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And everybody always says, well, why do you talk about roofing companies on your show about plants? Well, gardeners know the peace of mind is a very important thing. And most people, 
at people with shingle roofs at least worry about the roofs regularly. You hear all the ads that tell you, oh, the cold damage your roof, and then they'll tell you the heat damage your roof, and then they'll tell you the hail damage your roof, and you're wondering when you're going to have to replace your roof next. Well, if you put a Southwest Metal Roofing System roof on your home, you'll never have to replace it. It is truly a lifetime quality roof uh, that they like. They're saying is do it once, do it for life. I've had the roof on my home for over 20 years now. Never called them once with a problem. Here at Shades of Green, we probably had this roof for 12 or 15 years, and only damage we've ever had is when a truck backed into a part of it. They simply put on the best roof in the industry. It's an energy-efficient roof that will save you money on your utility bills. Many insurance companies will give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance when you have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on your home. And it protects you so many different ways. If I had 30 minutes, I could tell you all the reasons that I love Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. You give them a call and learn for yourself. Lots of colors, lots of styles to choose from, and always the very, very best. Number is 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for the best roof in the business from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on just a nice fall morning out there. It's going to be Pam and Kim and Annette and Judith. Pam's first in line. Good morning, Pam. Hi, uh, it's nice to talk to you. Um, My problem is we have a bamboo problem. It was planted years ago uh, at my neighbor's house, and now it has spread <laughs> to our back property, and right. it's taking over. And we tried to get rid of it by cutting it at the base with a chainsaw, and mm-hmm. we, for a while it looked okay, but it's come back, and the sprouts are everywhere. And I was wondering, if how do you get rid of it? <laughs> Well, it's, oh, I, I don't like, those Those are what we call running bamboos, and they will literally try to take over a neighborhood. I don't condemn all bamboos because there are clumping types that are really pretty good plants, but what you have, and you're going to have to visualize with me since I don't have a blackboard on the radio, but you've got the shoots coming up on the bamboo, which is what you cut off, but just underneath the surface of the ground, there's like an underground stem that's running along parallel to the top of the soil. It's uh, called a rhizome and you have to get rid of that. But it doesn't go deep and bamboo doesn't come back from the roots. Um, you don't have to dig a big hole or anything but a grubbing hoe uh, which is looks kind of like a pickaxe but has a broadened blade on the backside. You just kind of go along and chop down about an inch, inch and a half deep in the soil and just keep pulling out that underground rhizome and you will get rid rid of it you can get rid of it uh but it's some work uh but like i say it's, it's not like you have to go digging a foot down it's not like trying to get rid of uh, bermuda grass or something like that but it will continue to sprout out until you dig up that that rhizome that's again it's shallow it's not too hard to get up but if you don't get that up the other thing 
that you might be able to do is to do like you did cut it uh, but you'd have to do this in July or August you can cut it off and then you can get uh, some heavy like six mil plastic either black plastic or clear plastic put that over the area where the bamboo is and you know underneath that plastic it's going to heat up to about 180 degrees and that will that will kill out at least a lot of it because it'll get the soil so hot underneath it but um uh, want to try to smother it well uh, the smothering it it'll just continue to grow and you could cover an area with asphalt the six feet wide but it just grow along under the asphalt I believe and, it. <laughs> yeah and it, it just come up out at the edge of the asphalt so uh there's not really much smothering unless you do it with something uh you know something like plastic in the heat of the summer where it can really heat that soil up and parboil it but uh that it's it's just i i personally think that that kind of bamboo should be should be outlawed because it does cause so many problems now there's some of them they're very beautiful there's black bamboo there's uh oh some of the giant timber bamboos but uh some of this oh, just golden bamboo they, they didn't plant that type they planted the the kind that run like wild indians all over <laughs> yeah and then they moved to get away from it probably <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, they did. Yep, but no, it's you have to you have to dig, but you don't have to dig deeply. Uh, you just go down, like I say, about an inch below the surface of the ground. You'll find this, so kind of like a just a, a not just a cord running along there, and uh, that type of bamboo, that little subterranean thing, can go out three feet before it sprouts up. But uh, it's 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 some it's work. Like grass, it's like grass. Yeah. And then when you get rid of it in your yard, dig about a six or eight inch deep trench and get some galvanized metal flashing put down in that trench because this runner doesn't go deep. It will always be within just an inch or two of the surface of the ground. So once you get rid of what's in your yard, or you can even do it beforehand, dig right along the fence line, put a barrier down about six or eight inches into the ground, and you won't have it anymore, but you're still going to have to dig out what's on your side of the fence. So it would come to the barrier and just stop. Yeah, it'll turn and go sideways along the barrier, and it'll make a nice, nice big stand of bamboo there. But uh, it doesn't go deeper to go under, and it doesn't climb up on top to go over. It just, uh, it just well, butts its I head against it. You turn and let it go back over <laughs> where it came from. <laughs> well, it will do that to some extent as well. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. So the only. So then, to recap, the only way to really get it out is to pick it. Dig well, to, yeah, to dig it, but again, it's not like you have to, uh, you know, dig a, a great big deep hole. The the part that you need to remove is just below the surface of the ground. So it's it's really, it's some work, and I, if you've got a big patch of it, I just do a little bit every day, and first thing, it'll all be done. Okay, all right. Well, thank you. At least there's there's an answer to it. <laughs> there certainly is, Pam. I appreciate the call this morning. Well, thank you. Thank you very Certainly. Goodbye. All right. I believe Kim is up next. Good morning, Kim. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Uh, I just wanted to say that about three or four years ago, I was listening to your show, and you had suggested doing some um, some seed, some rye seed or some kind of seed for, for overwintering. Right. Sprinkle it on and tamp it down. Do you know that stuff is, comes up faithfully every year? It looks so good. 
Mm, and then it goes away in the summer. Yeah, but I didn't know it was going to last. So I thought it would just be kind of a one and done, and I'd have to redo it. So I think of you every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it pleases you. Where are you located, Kim? I live in um, right by Oakwell Farms. Really? Well, I. I used to have a Kim call me from Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I, I wasn't sure. It, it's a little surprising that it does reseed that well for you. I guess most people want to mow it off or whatever before it actually makes it seed in the spring. But uh, you're you're treating it the, the right way if you want it to come back. It, it's not truly a perennial because it, it's, it's not the same plants coming back. It would be what we call a reseeding annual. It comes back on its own but it's coming back from seed not from the plant so uh, you obviously have an ideal situation Oakwell Farms you guys have got some pretty good alluvial soil over there so uh, you're able to grow more things than uh, many of us in shallower soils but I'm, I'm glad to know it's worked well for you and that you're pleased yeah. with it yeah it's coming it's the only green thing in my dead backyard but I was calling <laughs> because I'm going to get a new fence I have quite a large fence, and I wanted to ask your opinion about, I know you probably said this, do you recommend cedar? No. Cedar? No, I don't. Um, Now, if you had true, if you had cedar, what we call up in the hill country, uh, a cedar, which is actually a juniper, um, it's it it rots it rots almost as fast as pine does if uh, you came by the nursery you would see me up on a ladder replacing some cedar lath that uh, and you know we we use cedar on a lot of things thinking that it would last and um, it just it, it rots away over time and I guess if you say well I'm only going to be in this house five years and who knows what's going to happen after that that it would, you know, might be, you know, might be okay. But it, it kind of comes down to how much you want to spend, how long you want that fence to last, and what you want it to look like. Um, I am absolutely in love with this uh, wood called Eco, E-C-O, Eco Vantage Wood. Uh, it is natural wood, but it's especially processed wood, especially treated wood, but there are no chemicals involved. But uh, it's a process that was developed in Finland all the way back in 1939. And um, it's the wood is super kill dried. It dries it to the point that uh, bakes the uh, carbohydrates out of it so termites don't go after it and if you feel the surface of it it's really smooth the water can't get into it they've had it in ground contact in east texas for 30 years no rotting pilings in swamps for 30 years no rotting and it's really good looking wood it's pretty pricey it's about the same price as uh, the synthetic wood that they call trex t-r-e-x which is actually a plastic material with wood fiber in it so um uh, there, there's not really a retail place you can buy it, but um, if you, you know, with a big project uh, like building a fence or something like that, uh, they would happily talk to you, or they would happily talk to whoever's going to build the fence for you. But um, again, there are a lot of cedar fences built, and they look pretty for about five years, and then they rot out. So um, you're not. How about if I build it, or it, or can it uh, No. It does, doesn't does really, that will extend the life a bit, but you'll have to go back and reseal it every year, and even then the part below ground is probably going to rot. So 
Um, if you're if you're over if you're over by Shades of Green, you probably know where we are, just between the quarry and the airport. Um, look at look at what we're doing, what we're and we're redoing. You know, some cedar lath actually here. And you can see how rotten it's gotten over the years, and see what this wood looks like. And I'll, I'll give you the name of the people uh, that I don't I don't know any fence builders, but uh, I can show you a little bit more about it. But if I were building a fence, uh, and it's great to work with. I mean, it's a carpenter's dream. Cuts easily, nails, screws, uh, planes, whatever you want to do with it. But it's just it's about the only wood that I usually use in construction anymore. Just because it is so durable and it is so good looking. So, um, like I say, there's nothing wrong with cedar, but if you have expectations that it's going to not rot, you're going to be sorely disappointed in it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, I got a quote and it's eight, it's over $8,000. Yeah. How long is the fence? Oh, it's, I, I was looking at the bid. I, it's pretty. It's pretty. I have the biggest lot on the street. Okay. And it's that big, but I mean, it's it's a lot of mess. Not a lot of mess. The roof. <laughs> well, yeah, and unfortunately. You know it. Uh, anything involving labor and building fences certainly involves labor. Um, it is expensive. The the other probably less expensive option would be to put in a chain link fence or something and cover with vines. It'll give you the same privacy the wood will. But uh, I would I, I would at least look at the eco vantage and see if it's within your budget because it's something that's probably going to last fifty years. Yeah. Well, I'm. You know, I probably won't be here more than 10. <laughs> well, it, it, Cedar, I, again, I can't tell you what to do or not to do. I just try to give you all the information I can, and you, you figure out what fits your budget yeah. and your situation. And uh, uh, But, uh, again, I, I, people wanting to build raised beds and things like that, uh, I tell them, you know, the two answers are either the synthetic wood like Trex or using something like the Eco Vantage, and uh, every situation is different. So you simply inform yourself as best you can, and then do whatever fits your needs and your budget. That's why I called you, and that's why I appreciate it so much. <laughs> Stop by and take a look at it. I think you, I think you'll be impressed with how it looks. And uh, um, but it, uh, yeah. it, and and you can also look at what we did. Uh, over in front of our parking area, we wanted a durable fence that gave us protection as well. And uh, we actually used a metal and then put uh, heavy-duty the wire, welded wire on the outside of it, and planted uh, Confederate jasmine up it. And it's just a beautiful green wall, but it's uh, it's a substantial fence that someone would have trouble getting over. And uh, animals can't dig under it, around it, or through it. So... Uh, uh, you can take a look at that and see how we handle that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your help. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, let me know what you decide. Okay, I will. <laughs> All right, Kim. Thank you so much. All right, let's get our last break of the hour in here. And um, 
Then we'll be talking with Annette and Judith. I get to talk to you about Dr. Mark Williamson. And once again, what does dentistry have to do with gardening? Well, it's been shown that good oral health will add years to your life. And, you know, there there are dentists out there. I'm not going to tell you to switch dentists. But if you're looking for a new dentist, if you're new to town and you want to start with the best out there, I've known Dr. Mark Williamson for a lot of years since he went to work with Dr. Staffel many years ago. And the man is so broadly trained. Today's dentist coming out of dental school, guys and gals, they are taught that if it's anything more just a cleaner filling, send them off to a specialist. Well, Dr. Williamson is a specialist. I can't imagine any issue involving oral health that he can't take care of right there in his office, including some very complex issues. He's so broadly trained, but it's more than that. He's a compassionate man, and he's interested in you. He's not thinking about how many patients he can see today. He's not thinking about the next person coming in. He's thinking about your good health, your oral health, and what he can do to help you. If that sounds like the kind of a dentist you would like to have, I'd strongly suggest you give him a call. Uh, he is Dr. Mark Williamson. The practice is called uh, Dr. Williamson and Associates. The number is 341-2569, and his office is conveniently located out in northeast or northwest San Antonio, uh, right there just off Cherry Ridge Drive. It's just, uh, just north of Loop 410, just east of I-10. Easy to get to, easy to find, wonderful, compassionate people offering you the absolute best quality dental care. Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, gosh, guys, I really appreciate the phone calls. You kept these these lines busy all morning. It's going to be uh, Annette and Judith and Scott and Leanne. Uh, we start at the top of the list, and that's with Annette. Good morning, Annette. Good morning, Bob. Just absolutely loving this weather. <laughs> it's beautiful. I I don't think I we're going to do any sunbathing today, but we so need the rain, and it's just a very pleasant temperature. You actually get out and do some hard work, which is on my schedule after after I finish the show. But you don't sweat so much. So I it, I'm I'm with you. This is a great day. Absolutely, and I'm going to go out and plant a little bit more lettuce. Just get a few more growing. That's great. So I have a, a sweet potato and a papaya question. I was okay. planning on leaving the sweet potatoes out for a little longer, but the leaves just looked horrible. So I mm-hmm. harvested about 14 pounds of sweet potatoes yesterday. Oh, wow. Thanksgiving's going to be special around your house. I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited. Um, uh, I'm just looking for an easy and quick way to cure. I go online, and there's so many ways and heating mats and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, what's an easy, quick way to cure my sweet potatoes? Well, you're not really curing them. You're, you're just preparing them for storage. Uh, you do not want to wash them. Um, best thing you can do is simply, you don't want to wash them until you're ready to cook them. Uh, but just get a, not a wire brush, but a soft brush and, uh, just brush as much of the dirt off of them as you can and store them in a cool, dry place. You want to spread them out where they're not touching each other. You want to have air circulating, uh, and don't ever put them in a plastic bag. Um, what I do with onions, with garlic, with sweet potatoes, uh, everything like that, I've got some of those old plastic uh, beverage containers, you know, they used to haul around soft drinks in, and I can stack them about six inches high. And so that's where I put things like sweet potatoes, and just keep them cool. 
Uh, this time of year, the garage is probably okay because it's not the hot summer months or, you know, a closet or something like that. But I think the most important thing is good air circulation and don't wash them. You don't want to get them wet. You just want to brush off uh, as much of the soil as possible. And that's true, you know, for garlic and, and for onions and just about everything. You just happen to be harvesting your, your sweet potatoes at the time that we're planting some of those other things. But that's all there really is to storing them. So different than what I heard on a, a YouTube video. So I'm so, so glad I called you because I would have been doing the wrong thing. <laughs> well, cool cool and dry is the best answer. And you just have to recognize that so much of what you find on the Internet, on YouTube, on whatever else, it's probably real good advice, but it might be good advice for Pennsylvania, and it might not be too good for Texas. So um, I'm glad you called as well. I've learned the hard way to call you first. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to hear from you, and uh, I. I have a papaya uh, Can I ask okay, a yeah, sure. So I had two volunteer papayas growing this summer, and one was great. It was it came up in the vegetable garden, but on the west side, so it provided some very needed shade. Uh-huh. So that one, you know, it's right in the vegetable garden. It's probably going to freeze, freeze. But I have another papaya that grew in a pot, and it, it's only like maybe 12 inches in diameter. The pot mm-hmm. is a small pot. The papaya is about six feet tall now. Okay. Is that something I could bring inside during the winter? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, do you know if they're the Mexican papaya or the Hawaiian papaya? Did you plant the seeds yourself? No, it was just it voluntarily grew some seeds. <laughs> okay, well here's here's the thing. Um, Mexican papayas, the male plants are male and female plants are separate. So if you only have one plant, unless there's another one somewhere around, you're not going to get fruit, and you can't tell which is which until they start to bloom, and then they're kind of like a squash. You'll be able to see the difference in the flowers. The Hawaiian papayas. Uh, the much smaller papaya and in, uh, really, really sweet. I love Hawaii. I love all papayas with little lime juice. But um, mm-hmm. you will have to protect them from freezing. But it's kind of like bananas. They have to grow for about 18 months before they start producing. So you've got to get them through a winter one way or another. Many people who grow and harvest papayas start them inside really early in the year, like in December or January. And, you know, they have them in places where they've got lots of light and things like that. And they want to have them already three or four feet tall when they plant them out in the garden so that they will have a chance to get papayas from them. Um, But you do absolutely have to protect them from freezing but uh, bring it in when it's going to get cold keep it in the sunniest window you can and um, uh, like I say you may <laughs> you may have to grow a second plant uh, or several other plants because you can't tell by looking which are the male and which are the female plants right. but um, uh, just don't get your heart set on papaya salad uh, until so, we know which one you have so I have well, like I said, I had one that grew right in the vegetable bed, and I wasn't uh-huh. planning on digging that one out. But what do you think? Should I dig that one out, put in a plant, and have two papaya plants? Uh, it's either that or build a greenhouse over it. Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't do weather. I only do plants. And uh, I have a friend that uh, built a greenhouse over a grapefruit tree in his backyard, and he kept building it bigger and bigger. And Danny would, you know, get two bushels of grapefruit every winter off of it. So, just depends on how hard you want to work at it. But uh, 
the one that's uh, in the ground, how big is it now? How tall is it? The one that's in the ground is maybe about four feet tall. Okay, well, that's still... Yeah, that's a that's a transplantable size. Uh, if if you really, you know, if you want to have some fun and you have room for it, dig it up, put it in a five gallon container, and uh, grow them both inside through the winter. Now, once we get past the danger of freezing weather, you can go ahead and plant them outside so they can, you know, be a little bit easier to maintain. But the Mexican papaya is going to want to grow ten or twelve feet tall, so it's going to need some room. I'm really excited. So <laughs> That's fun. That's just fun, isn't it? I heard you talking about the squash vine borer, and yeah, they got to my zucchini and my my uh, my yellow yeah. crookneck squash, but they didn't get my butternut squash, mm-hmm. and I had the most delicious butternut squash soup yesterday. Oh, and you did. I think I'm going to be doing a lot more butternut squash. <laughs> well, you can do that, and the thing about the butternut that it has a very small, slender stem, and there's not room for the boar to get into it. There's actually a squash called tatumi, T-A-T-U-M-E. Uh, they call it calabacita is the other name for it. And it is a squash that looks and tastes like a round zucchini, but uh, it also has a very thin stem that the borers can't get into. So if you want to plant a second variety, you don't have to worry about the borer. Uh, the borers look for tatumi or calabacita squash and plant that along with your butternut. I'll try that. I did try acorn squash, but I think uh-huh. I only got three. Yeah, they times. don't they don't produce as many. Listen, I'm going to have to let you go because it's right up at news time, and uh, right after we come back, it'll be Judith's turn right here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back to gardening and uh oh gosh, it's just uh it's just a beautiful fall morning out there. Just no other way to put it and uh great day to be thinking about gardening. If you're oh under a cloud that's dripping a little rain out, you probably want to sit on that porch and just look at it. If uh, a lot of areas around though the rain rain is let up and so it's pretty moist, but it's sure not a bad day to get out and uh get some things done out there. Looks like the lineup right now is Judith and Scott and Leanne and Joanne. Judith's first in line. Good morning, Judith. <clears throat> Good morning, Bob. It's your uh, neighbor up 474 who is actually on the porch looking at the rain. <laughs> Very good. Do you know how much we got gotten overnight? Uh, not yet, but it's coming down pretty steady here right now. It's making nice noises in my wind, in my uh, water spout things. That's always welcome. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to jump in an inner tube on the Guadalupe again for the first time in several years? Yes. Um, I also wanted to thank you for your advice to go see Dr. Kirby for our dog, Orion. Sadly, he passed uh, because of bloat, but because of your recommendation, we got him for an extra month, and I solely believe it's because of Dr. Kirby, and we can't thank you enough for that. Well, he's an amazing man. I I wish we could find him a couple of uh, associate vets so the poor man wouldn't have to work so hard, but... uh, 
Uh, he, uh, he's one of the most caring people I've ever known and also far and away the best veterinarian I've ever known. And sorry you lost your puppy. We've, we've lost three of them in the past year or so, older and due to natural causes. But every one of them, Dr. Kirby gave us uh, a lot of extra time with and just, um, just respect the man so much. And for me, it's such a privilege just to sit in with him and learn from him. So, uh, you've made a, you've made a good discovery. And when you get that new one, uh, it'd be a good place to start. Yes. Well, that comes to our question. So we want to plant a memorial tree, mm-hmm. um, a memorial to our dog. Now, the goal is that it gives beautiful fall color, uh, colors and uh, extra points if it flowers in the spring. Now, one of the trees <laughs> we were looking at, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm asking for a lot, right? Now, one of the oh. trees that I was looking at that we saw on the Dirt Doctors page that would be well in our area was a ginkgo tree. But then mm-hmm. we have to make sure we get a male so that the female doesn't leave the rotten fruit. But we wanted, my husband and I wanted to see what was your recommendation for up in our area, North Bernie, that would well, give a beautiful memorial tree. Are you on thick soil or thin soil? Are we on thick soil or thin soil, Danny? You can dig down about a foot and a half before you hit the bedrock. Well, you probably would do okay with a ginkgo. That's one thing ginkgos require is deep soil. And two inches of soil, I tell you, don't even think about it. If it's bedrock, that may be an issue. But if it's if it's just rock mixed with soil, uh, the way I always tell people, look around and see what the trees around you look like. If you have big old monstrous majestic oaks, then you've probably got enough soil to do well with a ginkgo. If you have a lot of oaks, but they're all about five or six inches in diameter you are truly sitting on bedrock and a ginkgo probably wouldn't be the best choice so um, the things to know about ginkgos uh, you get beautiful fall color the and what seems to happen is these things seems <laughs> they seem to be able to change their sex periodically who knows whether it's uh, something the trees responding to or what causes it but there are many trees many different trees not only ginkgos but others that have been sold as male trees that 10 or 15 years later all of a sudden started uh, producing fruit so there's no guarantee now the fruit's messy uh the dogs will eat it but it it might give an upset tummy but it's not really going to hurt them but <clears throat> i uh, uh, a ginkgo is a very interesting tree I the flowers are not showy on it, but if you're looking for beautiful fall color, uh, it certainly is a possibility. Other trees I would look at uh, the big tooth maple uh, does very well up in your area. This is the same one uh, that you know grows over in Los Maple State Park, and it will give you beautiful fall color. And it also has pretty foliage when it comes out in the spring, and it does pretty well. There are an awful lot of them around Bernie and Cibolo uh, Nature Center and some other places have done a lot to you know make trees available at different times so that's another one that you know will give you uh give you nice color and be a hardy long live tree a lot of people don't think of them as trees but 
Uh, the thing that's going to give you the best when it comes to flowers and pretty foliage would be a big crepe myrtle. Uh, there are crepe myrtles that grow 30 feet tall. Uh, they can be trimmed to be tree-like. I prefer them as multi-trunk trees rather than as single trunks. But they're going to give you the benefit of beautiful flowers through the summer months. And especially the ones with the darker colored flowers tend to have beautiful red leaves uh, in the fall. The leaves are smaller, so they're not quite as showy as a maple. And certainly not like you're going to see with things up north. But um, it's a tree that has you know, the ability to live uh, 50 or 100 years or more and uh, would be a great tribute. Uh, one other thing that you could do, and I'm actually uh, doing this for a friend who wanted to plant a, a memorial uh to a family member and uh, the dwarf uh, Japanese maples are absolutely gorgeous. They don't make a big shade tree and of course uh, you may have issues with deer. The heat took a little bit of a toll on them but um, if you if you wanted a memorial shrub-like tree I, I wouldn't have any problem with growing an understory tree like a maple but if you want something that's going to be Big and showy, um, I think those are all three good choices. Uh, you know, your uh, ginkgo, your big tooth maple, not the Japanese, but the big tooth maple or big crepe myrtle. Any of those should grow really well for you in your area. Well, he was a big dog, so I think we want a big tree. So my husband and I said thank you uh, for the recommendations. And we have huge majestic oaks, so it's definitely not bedrock. It's rocky. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're pretty big and big diameter. Um, but we can't thank you enough again, and we love these recommendations. Now, the other one we were going to ask was, where would we find these? Because uh, I know if the ginkgo and the maple, they might run out, um, mm-hmm. or they may not even carry them. So if you had to go look, where would you go to, to get these trees? Well, I would go uh, a good nursery. Um you're you're a little ways north. You might try Friendly Natives up in Fredericksburg. May very well have the Big Tooth Maple. Um, crepe myrtles, you'll find good varieties. Just buy from somebody that knows what they have and, and get the variety that will be the size you want. Ginkgos, I don't know anyone in Texas that grows them. We all buy them out of California because this is where most all of them are grown. And they probably they don't ship a lot of them until January, February. So I doubt that you're going to find them. It'd just be a matter of calling around. And certainly try Fanix here in San Antonio. Um, you can call here a little later. I know we had some earlier, but I don't know if we still do. But uh, be aware, it may be, may be a month or two before you're going to find them in the nurseries. But uh, uh, the big California grower, uh, Monrovia, is probably the biggest producer of uh, the ginkgos. And we generally get them that are maybe already six or eight feet tall, and, and but they're about the only supplier. So any reasonable size nursery that you deal with probably will be getting them in, but probably not until after the first of the year. Great. Well, um, I will definitely call your store afterwards, and we travel all the way down to your store all the time, and we travel to Phoenix. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, it's not a bad drive to get the best of the best. So thank you again for your great advice. Thank you again for the advice on Dr. Kirby, and uh, when you see him next hour, please tell him thank you again from us. 
I most certainly will do it. Yeah, I tell people regularly, if I had a severe problem, I'd trust Dr. Kirby. I mean, I know a couple of good MDs that happen to be doctors and friends, but I tell you in general, I'd trust Dr. Kirby before I'd trust, trust most human doctors. So, uh, um, again, I'm, I'm glad he gave you a little bit more time with your puppy, and uh, hopefully the next one will be with you for a lot of years to come, and uh, you're doing a good thing planting a good memorial tree. So appreciate you giving me a call, and hope you guys have a good thanksgiving thank you you too bob happy thanksgiving thank you so much all right let me get a break in here and talk about health talk about human health talk about Rhonda's nature's way yes i was in Rhonda's yesterday as a matter of fact when i left here because i rely on Rhonda. i rely on her staff uh, to help me stay healthy and here we are cold and flu season here you're hearing about all the rhinoviruses uh, still a lot of covid around we've had a couple of employees out with it recently stuff's out there and your best defense is staying away from high fructose or high high refined sugar content things and supporting your immune system. You do those two things and you will be way ahead in the game and Rhonda can sure help you with things that will support your immune system. A lot of different ways you do this and there's so many natural things out there that you don't have to go get a pharmaceutical medication for. And if you're dealing with things like digestive issues or sleep issues or mood disorders, they're natural things that will help. If you're looking to sharpen your mental acuity, there are things that will help. If you want to improve your vision of course you know that it, you can't can't correct every problem out there but there are things that will very definitely help and that's what Rhonda knows about and has done for many many years now uh, I rely on Rhonda I always have and uh, I just absolutely love her family and her store and I shop there regularly out uh, the store you can't go today they're always closed on Sunday but they're located in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 in Callahan kind of across the parking lot from Sprouts and uh, again just remember the name when you need to feel better naturally you want to know about Rhonda's nature's way you'll be hearing me loud and clear once again uh, I was just thinking about allergens and that I should have mentioned about Rhonda that she has all sorts of good things for allergen problems allergy problems if you're suffering from that right now let's talk plants and uh, let me grab my list right here looks like it's going to be uh, I believe it's uh, Judith is next. Is that correct, Greg? Going to Scott next. Very good. Uh, good morning, Scott. Morning. How are you, sir? Uh, oh, not too bad. I had a transplant and seed planting questions. Um, first off, going back to that lady, would you recommend a Shantung, the previous caller, would you recommend a Shantung maple or a uh, I like uh, Chinese I- pistache? Uh, they're not long-term trees. Both of those trees have problems over time. Uh, she wants something I'm sure that's going to be there as long as the family is. And, uh, the big tooth maple is going to be a better choice than, uh, Shantung, um, and very definitely better than Chinese pistache. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Um, so I harvested about two and a half weeks ago, uh, some antelope horn, mm-hmm. uh, seeds. Right. Would now be okay to 
plant them or should I wait until spring? I would definitely wait until spring. Um, the the problem is, well, there are two problems. Uh, the little plants are cold sensitive and uh, you plant them now, they sprout and we get some cold before they have time to harden off. The other thing is that we have no guarantees that the rains will continue and uh, you plant them, they sprout and then we go into a dry season and they don't you know, but they, they don't make it through the winter. So the seed is easy to store. Put it in just a paper envelope and then put that envelope in a mason jar or something like that. Screw the top on tightly and put it in your refrigerator and uh, your seed will be very, very viable next spring. I know that nature plants them at this time of year, but remember that nature's planting 10 million seed in hopes that 10 of them are going to grow. Uh, you want to have a little bit higher percentage of success that way. So, uh, I, I would hold your seed. If you want to start them inside sometime around the 1st of February, you can certainly do that, and you'll have nice little plants to transplant out as soon as we're past the danger of freezing weather. Okay, so I do need to throw them in the free- refrigerator, though? In the refrigerator, not the freezer. Uh, yeah. It just, again, that kind of seed, uh, it's going to keep what it in there or not but it will be more viable the seedlings will be stronger and you'll much have a much higher percentage of germination uh if you do you know keep them in the refrigerator i do recommend putting the the whatever you put your seeds in putting it in a jar and sealing it up because our modern refrigerators of course are frost free which means they're very low humidity and that can dehydrate the seeds so yeah if you look in the back of my refrigerator sometimes there's <laughs> more seeds than there are <laughs> And there is food in there, but uh, uh, yeah, they, they will store extremely well. But they'll they'll keep longer, faster germination, and stronger seedlings if you do keep them chilled over the winter. Not in the freezer, but in in the refrigerator. Okay. Do I need to take the uh, feather part of it off? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You know, they've got that, like, parachute, so they you will yeah. float a long way. The little brown thing is uh, the only thing that actually is a seed the others just it's <laughs> and that's its free ride to get wherever it's going to end up but um you could even you know as long as it's dry you could even put the whole pod that's just you know half broken open uh any way you like whatever's convenient for you yeah and uh two transplant questions best time to actually plant them in the ground i have a double delight rose that i uh-huh. uh took a cutting off of and it's uh-huh. taken uh, should I kind of nurse that over the winter and plant it in spring? That's what I would do. I would put it in not a not a big pot, but uh, how how big is the cutting? How how long is the cutting? Uh, out of the pot, it's about a foot. Okay, yeah, I would put it in a gallon container. If it were smaller, I would probably put it in a four-inch pot, but uh, a one-gallon container should be ideal, and uh, you'll have a well-established uh, plant. You'll have it on its own roots, and double lights an absolutely beautiful rose. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm just it, happy it smells as good as it does compared to all these yep. other hybrids nowadays. Oh, boy, isn't that the truth? But it's, yeah, it, it combines so good fragrance with uh, an attractive thing. It will be a hardier plant, uh, being on its own roots and, um, uh, 
Uh, they just they, they graft them because they can produce a thousand times as many of them, and it all comes down to dollars and cents. But uh, in this case, we're interested in cents spelled S-C-E-N-T-S instead of just like money. But, yeah, no, I'd, uh, oh, yeah. I'd keep it, and you can certainly leave that pot outside. If it's going to get much below freezing, bring it in because we don't want the soil to freeze solid. But uh, there are typically not a lot of days in the winter we have to do that. So, yeah, that's what I would do. Okay, and same question for honeysuckle. Uh, I took a cutting, and it's rooting. What kind of honeysuckle? The coral honeysuckle or Japanese honeysuckle? I'm assuming Japanese. It's just one I took a cutting from years ago in a in a in the park. Mm -hmm. It's the white one with the, and it turns yellow or orange as it gets. Yeah, that's that's probably it's either halls or Japanese. Um, and how long ago did you, uh, did you root it? How long ago did you take the cutting? Uh, like a week or two ago. No, I I definitely protect it through the winter then. Uh, if this was something, you know, you'd done three months ago, I'd tell you that plant's hardy enough to put in the ground. But a recent one like that, no, I'm, I'm going to keep it in, in a pot. Uh, again, probably a gallon-sized container, and uh, you just grow it through the winter and plant it out in early spring. All right, and last one. I mentioned it to you earlier, but I forgot. I don't know if I asked a certain part of the question. I have a, uh, oh, what do you call this thing? Candlestick bush? That, uh, yeah, Empress, Empress Candlestick, yeah. Yeah, that for some weird reason decided to sprout at the very beginning of fall instead of summer. Uh-huh. And uh, I have it in a four-inch container. Should I transplant it? Uh to keep it over winter, obviously I have to bring it in because I don't want it to freeze, but should sure. I transplant it to a bigger pot? The two reasons to transplant are either it's so big it won't stand up or it's drying out so quickly. The more root-bound it becomes, the faster it will dry out, and you get to the point you have to water it three times a day. So there's, uh, if, what, if it were mine, what I would probably do is just slip it very gently out of the four-inch pot that it's in, see how heavily rooted it is. If it has just formed a mass of roots in that pot, I'd move it up to a gallon size. If it's 80-90% uh, soil and 10% roots, I'd leave it where it is for now. Okay. That's all the time I can spend with you now. Well, those are excellent questions, Scott. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. And I believe it's uh, time to talk to Leanne. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Fine, thank you. Uh, Listen, I have called you before about um, my hardy hibiscuses because I have several of them in these large pots. Mm -hmm. I had always wanted to put them into the ground. And so I had a landscaping company come out and redo my flower beds last week. And they did put them in the ground for me. And they wanted to put some of that river rock stuff around them because of the the gutters and the runoff and so forth. Well, at any rate, they put river rock around them. And I didn't really think about it at the time. But the river rock is all the way up to the base of the plant. And I'm going to be cutting those back down to the ground usually in January and then they come up in the spring like March or April. Right. Are they going to be able to come up through that river rock? Um, yes, but let me ask you this question. Did they put any fabric or anything underneath the river rock? Well, no, not around the hibiscuses, but they did, and I have a giant oak tree in this flower bed too. Well, I was yeah. really, you know, I told them, I said, listen, you can't put anything around my, my tree because 
Bob Webster always talks about not putting anything around the root flare. And Harry Garrett, so they said, no, 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 we're not going to put anything around your, your tree. We're going to build a little base thing or a moat thing with some rocks, which they did, some bigger rocks to, to keep that separate. So they did that, but then they put river rock inside the moat thing that they built around the oak tree. Well, and I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned about that, but if they put any fabric underneath the river rock anywhere, get it out. Rake the rock back and get rid of that fabric because it just destroys the soil underneath it. And it will be long term, it'll be very bad for your oak tree and anything else in that area. Um, what I, I use that fabric when I want to kill everything. If I'm going to make my vegetable garden bigger and I've got tough native grasses and things, I'll put that fabric down for six months or so, and it kills it all. And when I pull it up, the soil is absolutely nasty underneath it. I have to add compost and compost heat and things to bring it back. But in my opinion, the landscape fabric should be it should be outlawed, um, and it's going to be harmful to your tree and anything else that you know has roots that go very far. Uh, the other thing about, um, especially about your hardy hibiscus, not so much about the oak. We'll talk about the oak in a second, but the hardy hibiscus, you really want to keep the base of that plant. Um, warm during the winter months and rock isn't going to do that my hardy hibiscus you know i i mount up compost over it i put half a bag of compost over my heirloom hardy hibiscus uh before this last big freeze and so it's uh i would not have the rock anywhere near it and i would very definitely use a good mulch around the base of your hardy hibiscus now back to the oak you need to have good air circulation around the trunk that's the important thing and uh uh, so you want to pull the rock back enough that you've got free air movement around it. Uh, um, and anyway, I, I, I'm not a big fan. I know rock in some places is serves a necessary purpose, but uh, unless that's just unless you want that southwestern look, uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of rock. I'll just put it that way. I'd, I'd rather see you use something like lava rock or something like that as opposed to the river rock. I think river rock's pretty if you want to create the look, you know, of a dry creek bed. I've seen it used very effectively in uh, in in large landscapes, but just as a replacement for grass, um, that's that's just not my style. Okay. Well, and I, I, I guess it's called river rock. It's, a, it's just a lot of brown brown rock. But anyway, yeah. um, anyway, I, I, he did say that they would come out and change it if I wasn't happy. So I think I will have them go ahead and take out that fabric that they put around the base of the oak tree, as well as pull back some of the rock around my hardy hibiscuses that they planted in the ground. Oh. I would yeah. do that, but I'd, I'd get rid of the fabric all the way altogether because if they've got that out over the root zone of this oak that you want to protect, it's going to be very bad for the roots and the soil underneath it. So, uh, I'd, you know, and, and land, and the so-called weed block doesn't stop the weeds. Uh, it may stop things from coming up through it, but I've seen the biggest weed patches in the world where seed has blown in, settled down around that rock, and then you've you've got as many weeds as you have before. So, you know, it's your decision, it's, it's your landscape, but uh, to maintain the health of the plants, uh, I would never use landscape fabric. Okay, and then another question, I heard you talking about your azomite a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some of your, uh, what's it called, landscape essentials or something? Right. Land essentials. Uh, uh-huh. Anyway, I, is, if I'm going to put some of that out today, 
Can I go right behind it and put some of the azomite out as well? Absolutely. I do it regularly. Okay. 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 I mean, I'm even trying to talk Stuart Frankie into putting azomite into the landscape essentials. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. I, I believe very highly in both of those products. Okay, perfect. That's what I need to know. Thank you so much, Bob. Have a great day. <laughs> You too, Leanne. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Greg, let's get a break out of the way, and we will come right back and start with Joanne. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, uh, let's get back to gardening, and I believe Joanne is next in line. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Um, What's going on today? Well, lots of things, but the easy one. <laughs> um, I have a mini banana that I planted in a whiskey barrel over the summer. Should I pull that out of the whiskey barrel and put it in a smaller pot and bring it into a greenhouse, or should I just try to insulate the whiskey barrel somehow to protect it? What What, what variety of banana is it? I don't remember, but it was one of the many varieties. Okay, they are not nearly as cold hardy. So, and you know, you can you can pretty much bare root them and replant them. Yes, I would dig it up, put it into oh maybe a three or five gallon size container, keep it warm. It'll be totally rerooted and take off and grow a lot faster uh, in the spring when you put it back outside. Good deal. All right. Next question. I have a. 12 foot by 14 foot area uh, that I wanted to plant some St. Augustine sod on. on. Do you think mm-hmm. it would be okay to do it now or wait till the spring? Oh boy. Um, look into your crystal ball and tell me what kind of winter we're going to have. <laughs> it, it probably would be just fine to do it now. I very definitely, uh, I'd probably put a little organic fertilizer down before I planted it and I would definitely put some compost on top. Uh, we're here in the middle of November. Typically we don't get our coldest weather until January. I say typically, never normally, but typically. So you're probably just fine to plant it now how big an area did you say it was it's about 12 by 14 feet oh yeah i'd i'd do it i'd do it as soon as you possibly can if you told me 112 by 114 feet i i would be more reluctant but uh 12 by 14 if we did have a horrendous winter and uh, it didn't do well that's that's not like breaking the bank to have to replant it but that size no i'd do it as soon as you can find good grass be sure to get it pressed tightly against the soil uh, i like those rollers that you fill with water and just the the whole idea is not to level it but just to take out any air pockets between the sod and the soil and uh like i say i'd I'd put a few cups of fertilizer, organic fertilizer down, put your soil or put your sod on top of it, put a quarter to half an inch of compost on top of that, and it'll be the prettiest grass you've ever seen next spring. Good deal. All right. Um, I have an aging greenhouse. It's not a real big one, but uh-huh. um, my sister who lives in Arkansas suggested that I insulate it with bubble wrap on the inside. What do you think about that? <laughs> What is your greenhouse built out of? What is what is the material on it? It's, it's got like the, uh, the 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 clear part or the opaque part is um, plastic, um, kind of. A, is it rigid? Rigid plastic. It's rigid, but it has like little holes in it inside of it. 
Okay. So, and wood structure. Okay. And uh, what do you grow in that greenhouse? I just mainly move my plants in there in the wintertime. Uh, so the winter, the well, if if you lived in Arkansas or even in Dallas, I would say it's a reasonable thing to do. It does add some insulation. In South Texas, uh, probably not necessary. Um, it's it, you know they don't give that stuff away. It's it's you know pricey. Uh, there are there are other things that you can do. Is it's, it's not a bad idea, but I, I just don't. I doubt very much if it's really necessary. Is the rigid stuff your greenhouse is built out of? Is it like honeycomb? Is it like two layers with an airspace in between? Yeah, yeah, but it's real thin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the choice is up to you. It, it, it will certainly give you some insulation. It will not last more than a season. It, it, you know, you'll be lucky if you get four months, uh, of life out of it before it really starts to deteriorate. If you told me that you were growing your desert rose out there and you had to keep that greenhouse at 80 degrees, I would say, well, yeah, then it probably is a good idea. Where it's simply winter storage, I, it's it's up to you. I doubt if you really need to do that. Okay, because I put heaters in there, and of course, the last two winters, uh, the heaters were overworking, but I still lost some plants. Yeah. The the other important thing to go along with your heater is some sort of uh, fan that will keep the air moving because air does stratify and you'll have heat at the top and cold at the bottom. Uh, if you keep the air moving around, it really does help. It actually helps to keep it water warmer because it keeps keeps the air, you know, mixed up. Um, it, there, when when your existing covering material wells wears out, uh, there's some really good bywall materials that that are highly highly insulative, and um, there's some there's some good things you can use to keep the greenhouse warmer, but um, I, I would say that using your bubble wrap is probably going to keep your greenhouse five degrees warmer. Uh, is about how much difference it's going to make. So if you if you normally can keep it at 65 or 70, uh, you'll be able to keep it at 75 or 80. So it will make some difference. It will help if we have, you know, a, a bitterly cold winter. But if we get down in the single digits, it's probably not going to be everything you need. Okay. All right. Last question. I'm having a problem with the dang squirrels getting in my raised beds that are like three feet off the ground and digging up <laughs> my spinach and, and stuff like that to plant whatever they're planting in there. Mm-hmm. Um, will um, um, blood meal keep them out of there, or what would you suggest? It will help, but it's not perfect. Um, blood meal is probably the best thing that you could put down as far as a repellent. I, I, I still, squirrels aren't welcome around my place. I have a, a neighbor friend that uh, gave me a squirrelinator for Christmas last year. And that's the neatest device I've ever seen. You can catch four or five or six squirrels at a time and relocate them to some area where they won't be so problematic. But, uh, you can certainly give the blood meal a try, but squirrels are pretty persistent. 
um, oh. and uh, again, they can be they can be very damaging. So uh, I I would rather see them go live somewhere else. If you want to try a repellent first, uh, try blood meal. There's also a product called Liquid Fence. It's very repellent to people as well, but uh, oh. it does seem to work against most uh, most small mammals as well. Okay, I have to tell you the Arkansas uh, remedy for squirrels. Um, my uh, uh, sister's brother-in-law was actually looking to buy some property and went out to this you know, rural area where this man had property for sale. And he noticed uh, all these big rat traps that are nailed onto these trees. And mm-hmm. he yep. Rats. And he said, no, those are for the squirrels. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I believe me, in my days in the biology department, that was a trapping technique that was used. But uh, I just always worry about other small animals, uh, even snakes. I've I've got uh, the Lindheimer's rat snakes and things that will go right up a tree trunk. And uh, it's just I'd, I'd rather be selective. I'd rather get them in a trap and then decide who lives and who dies, so to speak. But uh, no, that's uh, that that is a collecting technique that's uh, widely used in some areas. Okay, that was new to me, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't resorted to that yet. But we'll try the blood meal and. Yeah, I do try the blood meal, but but I I kid you not the uh, to trap. Well, and I'll have to tell you that the. Um, Depending on how you buy it, if you try the squirrelinator, they have one that comes in a big plastic pan with about four inch sides. And uh, the instructions say it can be used as a convenient euthanasia chamber if needed. <laughs> so, anyway, mine just goes somewhere else to live. But I, I, I had an old uncle that uh, got his finger many years ago too close to a trap with a uh, squirrel in it, and he used to call me and want me to haul the squirrels off. After one of them made a mess of one of his fingers, he never called me again. <laughs> and I have an idea. I, I think they they took their last swim. But uh, anyway, well, it's always good to talk to you, and uh, you get out and have a good good weekend, and have a good thing. Thanksgiving in 10 days or so. You too, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, Greg, let's get our last break of the show done, and we'll be back and see what kind of time we have. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right. Well, we're going to start with Kathy. Probably have time for one or maybe two more phone calls. And uh, if you want to dial, you know the number, 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. Um, good morning. I have, a, I have a male ginkgo biloba in a large pot, and he's about, I guess, six six feet tall. Uh-huh. And I want to propagate, um, but I want to know if now is the right time. Second question is, I have a Fuyu persimmon uh, planted in the ground. He's not a happy camper right now, but I put Super Thrive and has to grow, sprayed him with um, seaweed and all that, and Howard Garrett juice. I want to know, and mulch, lots of mulch. So um, can I propagate that also, and what do you have, tips do you have for both trees? Well, (laughs) yeah, most woody trees like that, uh, your results are mixed trying to, the way to propagate them if you want to try it, of course, is what we call air layering, where okay. you take a, you know, a stem, slice off a little bit of bark, wrap it up with, uh, sphagnum moss, and then wrap that right. up with foil. Um, okay. 
I doubt that, uh, I, I don't think I would try it this time of year. If it's going to work, uh, springtime would be better. It's just, it's just too cold to really expect it to root. And I honestly, um, I, I, I don't know whether the, uh, ginkgo will propagate that way or not. Uh, the Asian persimmons, uh, I've never known anyone to be successful air layering or, you know, growing from a cutting on those. They are almost always grafted and they are grafted onto a seedling rootstock. Um, but again, it's gonna, it's just gonna take you one branch to give it a try and, and see how it works. But, um, I, I wouldn't get my hopes up too high. Um, the, uh, uh, again, the ginkgos are almost always grown from seed. Uh, the persimmons, whether it's Fuyu or Taninashi or whichever one, uh, they are almost always grafted onto, uh, uh, a, a rootstock that's a little bit hardier. But again, nothing to lose. Uh, but, but I'd, I'd wait and probably do your, do your air layers just as the weather start to warm up about, uh, probably into February, 1st of March. Okay. Do you have any feeding suggestions from us to you? He's not a happy camper. <laughs> so. Um, if if a fuyu is having well, if any of the persimmons are having problems, uh, how long has it been in the ground? How long ago did you plant it? Oh, like an idiot. About the end of September. Okay. And they. Eat. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, they're hardy plants. Um, uh, usually, if there's a problem, they're being watered too frequently. Uh, there's no such thing as long as you know, as long as the hole drains. And anytime you right. plant a plant, you should fill it with water and be sure the water does drain out within a few hours. But yes. um, persimmons want to grow on the dry side. When you water, water really thoroughly, but don't water again until you can stick your finger down in, and that soil is dry a good two inches deep now it will help if you you don't want to put your thumb over the end of the hose and just spray water up and down the trunk you could do that daily and the tree would really appreciate it but um if if a if an asian persimmon of any sort is just doesn't look happy drooping things like that it's usually a sign that it is staying too wet and of course it's not the water that hurts it uh it's the fact that the water drives the oxygen out of the soil and you know uh, the roots have to have oxygen if the roots don't have oxygen the tree will fold up and die so when you water water thoroughly but be sure that you've let it dry out reasonably well before you water it uh in the meantime little super thrive will help uh spraying the bark will actually help because if the root system's compromised a young tree like that will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark so pretty sure you can save it but uh that's a tree that ought to be growing for the next hundred years for you Super. Thanks for helping. I appreciate it. That's what I'm here for. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. All right. So uh, we don't have any more callers right now, Greg? Okay, well, I'm going to give you some things to do over the next few days. And uh, number one, if you haven't fertilized yet this fall, 
you really do need to fertilize. Fall fertilizing is the most important fertilizing of the year for your grass, for your shrubs, for everything out of doors. Uh, it helps increase the cold hardiness of plants. And the other thing is, you know, the, the microbes in the soil have to more or less digest the fertilizer. Uh, it's not immediately useful to the plant. So if you wait until spring growth starts before you put your, your feeding on, well, you missed it by about three months. The fall fertilizing actually sets the stage on these plants for putting on good growth next spring, and especially where you've had grass and other things that really, really suffered with this uh, summer that we had. Fall feeding is one of the best things you can do to get those plants healthy again. And on the grass, uh, the second thing that I'll tell you to do is get some compost. Put a quarter to half inch of compost over the grass, and that combination, fertilizer and compost, you'll be amazed how much it will do to restore your yard. It also works as a very natural pre-emergent herbicide. People who put uh, compost on in the fall rarely ever have the spring weed problems uh, that most other folks do. So be a good thing to do, and that would be a perfect time to do it. Again, be sure your fertilizer is organic, because if you put synthetic fertilizer on uh, when the soil, when the leaves are wet, it will burn them very badly. So uh, organic fertilizer is fine to put out this afternoon. If you're still using that other kind of stuff, better wait until the soil's good and dry before you put it out. Other things that will help increase the cold hardiness of plants, uh, and maybe you have the hardy hibiscus, maybe you have uh, even geraniums and things like that that you leave out on all but the coldest days. Spray regularly with liquid seaweed. Two tablespoons to a gallon of water. My mixture is actually two tablespoons liquid seaweed, one tablespoon molasses, but that will increase the cold hardiness of your plants by several degrees, probably as much as five degrees, but uh, don't you can't wait and do it the night before. It's something you need to do over time because this allows the plants to build up their sugars which in effect service in antifreeze you know in in the stems of the plant so seaweed spraying is really important this time of year if you've got uh, house plants there are some of them that should be inside now chinese evergreen should be inside now diefenbachia should be inside uh your broadleaf dracaenas dracaena sanjana dracaena fragrans uh the so-called uh uh, Janet Craig's and the compact form of the Janet Craig's, all of those should stay in because they are really not happy below about 50 degrees. If you grow that beautiful plant called a desert rose, that one is not happy below about 65 degrees. So it really needs to come in. And be sure that you're giving your plants adequate light. Uh, the a bright sunny window is the best place for them. Lamp light, unless you have a quote grow light, and there's some, there are actually some very good uh, LED grow lights out there now. But uh, ordinary incandescent bulbs provide absolutely nothing that plants need. So anyway, it's uh, and and do stock up on what we call floating row cover. My favorite is the one called insulate fabric. Uh, it it lets enough light through, and yet it protects from freezing. You can wrap up uh, tropical vines and things like that and leave the insulate on all winter long things to plant out in your shady areas uh, most everybody's got nice cyclamen in now and that's going to be by far our most colorful bedding plant 
for the fall and winter months. Only have to be covered if we get really cold, like down in the middle teens. But down to that point, your cyclamen should be fine. Sunnier areas, my gosh, it's time for panning season, Johnny Jump Ups. Those things uh, bloom all winter long if they're getting good sun. You can also plant stock. You can plant dianthus. You can plant snapdragons and petunias. Those are all plants who will flower and be absolutely beautiful for you through the winter. Then the the cold affects the buds, but not the plants. Uh, then they'll grow through the winter, and uh, then we'll have just beautiful shows of flowers once again in the spring. Of course, if we wind up with a mild winter, snapdragons and stock and things like that can bloom all winter long. The things that you might have to protect a little bit, if you want to grow things like the lobelia and the alyssum, those things are beautiful in the fall, but may or may not make it through the uh, through the winter months. Out in the vegetable garden, boy, all your leafy vegetables, all of your root crops, still time to plant some more broccoli and cauliflower. A little bit early for your spring snow peas, but uh, you've got a lot to do out there. Dr. Kirby's next here on KTSA Radio.